What's going on, everybody? Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of the Welch Report with me, John Luke Welch. Make some noise, clap it up, get excited wherever you are. We are back with another jam-packed, action-packed episode for you today, covering everything going on in the world of boxing and the NFL as Super Bowl weekend is finally set with the Chiefs and San Francisco rematching against each other this year. I'm react to the games that happened thus far, or the games leading into this. Did Lamar Jackson indeed choke? What could what could Detroit have done better to actually get into the game of all games that they have been deprived of and been uh, again lackluster for a decade plus? This was their prime opportunity. Why, in fact, did they fold? And is it Dan Campbell's fault for the reason why this team is now going home from the playoffs and missing out on two? And again, in boxing, we got so much to cover with Keith Thurman's return and much more. Jaime Mugira knocking out John Ryder. Oh, we got a bunch to talk about. Just trust and believe. And we're going to talk about it right here. So again, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And without further ado, let's jump right in to the world of sports. Talking about, again, the NFL starting out this time because... My goodness, we have now seen the Chiefs again back in the Super Bowl. The dynasty continues to roll on. Patrick Mahomes continuing to make a resume and a legitimate case for potentially being able to usurp Tom Brady as the greatest quarterback of all time as he has been dominant. It's been a seamless transition of Patrick Mahomes taking over the mantle of Tom Brady, consistently winning, consistently dominating, and consistently getting to the Super Bowl. 14-3 and three in his playoff tenure. He's been in the league only six years. One win away if he wins the Super Bowl this year to breaking Peyton Manning's record for wins in a playoff season. Already tied with him if he gets to 15 and with the winning Super Bowl. It's insane what we're seeing from him and the Chiefs as a whole. But going up against Lamar Jackson and his Baltimore Ravens squad, this was the time for Baltimore to get it done. Baltimore, was this was their best shot at getting to a Super Bowl potentially ever with them being under Lamar Jackson. Reason being, this team had the best offense in the league, one of the best passing games in the league, the best running game in the NFL, and the best, best ranked defense in the league this year. They had everything at their disposal, and the Chiefs seemingly coming into the postseason were on the ropes. Was a team that was faltering later on in the season, as we knew with Patrick Mahomes getting mad with this team, constantly making mistakes on the sidelines, constantly breaking um, the line of scrimmage for the wide receivers and being offsides. Seemingly dumb mistakes that we weren't used to the Chiefs making, they were consistently making them. Any year was a year to get by them with how dominant they have been in this Again, dynasty of an era that they have ruled. This was the time. And they good they couldn't get it done. Why was it the case? How was it that they lost 17 to 10 to the Kansas City Chiefs? Because again, Chiefs are known to be historically, again, when this with this dynasty running since Evan Patrick Mahomes, one of the most potent offenses in the league. Even without Tyreek Hill on the squad right now. Still him and excuse me, Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey are the modern-day Brady and Gronk. Or if you want to go, if you want to just go do duos ever, Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, you can go Tom Brady or Randy, and Randy Moss. We can go a bunch of different di- dynamic duos that were together that were an unstoppable uh, uh, Rivers and Antonio Gates. We can keep going on. Again, I'm not comparing Travis and Mahomes to Montana and Jerry Rice in terms of we know Jerry Rice is the greatest 
wide receiver of all time. And Travis Kelsey is one of the best tight ends of all time. And potentially is looking like he could he could really eke his way into being the greatest pass-catching tight end of all time, even over Tony Gonzalez. There's a real reason why he is seen as an all-time great in such high esteem. So maybe, let me take it back, maybe that comparison isn't so far-fetched with how dynamic and how outright dominant both of these players are at their position. Them together is just unstoppable. But they were still only able to score 17 points against this Baltimore Ravens defense. And again, what we know and how we've seen this team run away from teams on a consistent basis, hey, the defense did their job. They, to a degree, lived up to their name of being the best defense in the league. But it's offense that killed this squad. That's what did this team in. They dropped back 82% of the time in this game. They, again, were, were part of the reason why they had the best offense in the league was the fact that they had legitimately one of the most dynamic running games that the NFL had with Lamar Jackson at the helm of it all. Again, him leading this team in rushing and them having, I believe, top five in touchdowns and most yards in the league on the ground. This was a squad and most attempts in the league this year. This was a team that had an identity and they went away from it. Got back and shot, done constantly pass instead of actually going to what worked for them. And so with that being the case, the question again comes into play is it all on Lamar Jackson's shoulders? Now, it is on his shoulders to a degree. Let's go on and answer it. It is on his shoulders to a degree because with any QB, it is your response. You you are you are going to take the blame. There's going to be a, a brief stint of you messed up. That's just, that's just the reality. But how much you messed up weighs in context to what ire really should go your way. And in terms of with Lamar Jackson, it shouldn't be as much. It's more so on the play calling than it is the player. Because mind you, Lamar Jackson put up, what, 260 yards of touchdown and interception on a, a nearly a, a 10-pass differential in terms of attempts and completions. Very similar to what Patrick Mahomes put up in this same game. A 10-pass a, a differential between completions and attempts I believe he put up 270, maybe 280 yards, and a touchdown. Yes, Lamar Jackson had an interception, but still, relative to everything else, it was a, he played, he played alongside Patrick Mahomes and didn't get outplayed to the nth degree. It was still, okay, this is respectable. Again, quarterbacks throwing interceptions, I'm not, it, it doesn't, it's not, if it's just belligerent ignorance, like why would you throw that? Hey, nah, but, for the most part, he had been playing, Lamar Jackson, had been playing well. But because he didn't utilize his legs to the fullest extent, he and his team suffered. And not just him not utilizing his legs, but the entirety of the rushing game that Baltimore had at their disposal with everybody healthy. They didn't use. They didn't use. The running backs had, what, six? I think the running combined, their actual running backs, had like 10 rushing attempts as a whole. As a whole, that's it. I think it was Zay Flowers had four, and I believe um, Montgomery had like six. So combined, people that touched the ball the most, ten. This, this uh, how, how? This isn't this. This is more so not on Lamar Jackson, but more so on the the the, the play calling and the coaching of the Baltimore Ravens, 
Why would you ever have to go against the grain of what has been your most pivotal offensive weapon? And this is not to say that Lamar Jackson can't be a passer. No, that's not what I'm saying. This is to say that with Lamar Jackson being such a dynamic dual threat and knowing, again, he can be an elite passer and is an elite passer. We've been through this whole quarterback situation before. This brother stone for 300, 400 yards, and he can do it anytime he wants. He's legitimately a great passer. Let's don't get it twisted. He is an elite passer. He is an elite pocket passer, as well as the best running QB that the NFL has today, one of the greatest of that, that we've seen in the history of the sport. So that running game is just an added to how great his passing game already is. So I'm not saying this in terms of he can't be a quality QB passer. What I'm saying is that when he, they went away from what made this whole offense work so fluently and be so unstoppable, what got them to a 13-4 and record, what got them to the best offensive rating and offensive output in the league today, routing teams, routing good teams, getting them out of there in dominating fashion. This offense was foundationally built off of the unpredictability and running ability of Lamar Jackson and the running game as a whole that the Ravens would, would put on. And again, the defense speaks for itself. They were the best running defense in the league. Or excuse me, not running defense, excuse me. They were the best defense outright in the league. As I've said before, this was on the game plan. More so than the player. More so than the player. If they had actively opted to run, more consistently and more deliberately like they had done for the entirety of this season. The entirety of the season and postseason up until this game. They would have been fine. They would have been fine. We would have been if if they did lose by that, okay, the Chiefs just had their number. They just did what needed to be done. But dropping back nearly 90% of the entire game, giving shoot, I was wrong. Let me rephrase the stats that I had. Between Lamar Jackson, Gus Edwards, Zeke Flowers, and Justice Hill. 8, 11, 13, 17. 17 rushes the entire game. Combined with all of them. Not even, I don't know why I said Montgomery. I apologize. I apologize. Not Montgomery. Somebody plays another team. I'm so sorry. So sorry. I'm so sorry. I got that name confused. I'm so sorry. I was, oh my gosh, that's on me. But the point still stands. 17 rushing attempts for the entirety of the game when you have the best rushing game in the league today against a defense that, again, while I respect the, de the Chiefs' defensive ability, they can be run on. And you're going away from what works the best for you. Especially when you weren't Later in the game, when you were when Lamar Jackson was scrambling because he couldn't find nobody open, when they were starting to lock down that passing game, hey, why wasn't the switch flipped to get to what worked? It makes no sense at all. None. Lamar was averaging six yards a game or six yards a carry this game. Gus Edwards was averaging six point seven yards this game. I don't on, on three carries he had twenty. That's two first. That's two and a half first downs. Potentially, uh, the, the averaging per 
maybe nearly a first down every carry. This is no, there's no reason for why Baltimore should have, why this should have happened. Because their defense did what was necessary. Holding Kansas City to under 20, which is a tall task to do. Offensively, game plan wise, they did not produce. They didn't perform. And yes, again, Ayer still falls on Lamar. He could have taken, not taken control, but he could have audible out, done more deliberate running when he saw that the passing game just wasn't working and, and changed it. But ultimately, while it falls on him, and he did fall short, and, and to a degree, we have to say that he did not perform up to the necessary level that we, were, that we expect from somebody of his caliber. Again, it was a good game. We needed a great game. A great game from Lamar Jackson. More than anything. Like we hold every QB when it comes to crunch time. This is a situation where even though he is at fault, it's not completely on Lamar. It is on the game planning of coaching to willingly go away from what has worked for them all this time. That's why they lost this game winning. Not as much as, oh, Lamar Jackson choked. Oh, he's a fraud. Nah, all that noise is stupid. The real story of the matter, because the Ravens went away from their running game, which has been and was when they were running, effective in this game. But with how little they actually went to the well, this is why we see them going on. And why the Chiefs are back in another Super Bowl appearance. And speaking of who they're going to face in the Super Bowl, now that they are there, switching gears and going to Detroit versus San Francisco, you want to talk about a disheartening situation for Detroit. This was a squad that had, again, for decades upon decades upon decades, had been an absolute travesty of a franchise. Nobody took them seriously because they were never good. Even when they had stars, they were never good. Again, Matthew Stafford, Calvin Johnson, even when Barry Sanders was there. He, the reason why he retired early, one, because he didn't want to get his body beat up. Two, because there was no help actually being brought to him. He was, that running back in Barry Sanders was drudging or carrying, dragging this squad to all of their success by himself. With nobody else around. So, it had been carry jobs by people doing the best they can with an organization that just as a whole sucked. Now, Dan Campbell, Jared Goff, and this whole franchise within the span of three years since Dan Campbell got there from having an absolutely abysmal start to his tenure, building this squad and motivating the squad to getting to one win away from the playoffs, getting a playoff win for some, what, 35 years, 30-something years? 20-something years, somewhere between 20 and 30 years. I had never seen it in my lifetime till, to, till the couple weekends ago. Got shocked, shocked in the park, shook me to the core. And it had been a Cinderella story. A Cinderella story. And now it's over. Now it's done. They are, again, this is still a successful season. Though they didn't get to a Super Bowl, they have officially showed that they are arrived. 
And the culture that Dan Campbell has brought to the squad is different in, a, in the best way possible. Different in a way that I thought would never be in Detroit. This man has brought life to this organization. He has brought life to the city of Detroit. Life to the Detroit Lions. Fuse the level of passion this city had lost and this team had lost and gave them hope beyond hope. It was, it was incredible to see. But now, we have, let's be real about this whole situation. One of the biggest reasons why they lost is because of Dan Campbell. That's just, that's just it. One of the biggest reasons why they lost this game against San Francisco is because of Dan Campbell. They were up 24-7 by halftime. Routing. Was it, was, it was either 24-7 or 27-1 or 2. Routing out. Demolishing. Destroying San Francisco. In a game that, again, I thought San Francisco was going to win coming in. But Detroit showed me something that I said, if this does happen, I will be the happiest man in the world. Again, I'm a Panthers fan. I'm not a Lions fan. But I want to see something that's never been done. And Detroit going to the Super Bowl, to my knowledge, had never been done. Figured it would have been the first one in franchise history after decades of mediocrity. They had this team on the ropes. And credit to San Francisco. They came back and performed like San Francisco. They, they got back in rhythm after being absolutely demolished first half. Christian McCaffrey started coming on. Debo Samuel was getting some points. Defense was getting stopped consistently, and Brock Purdy was doing more than a game manager. Was operating the Shanahan offense to the best of his ability. Storming back. And inevitably, they won 34-31. But this is on Dan Campbell. Because remember, there was a pivotal play late in the game. It was the third or fourth quarter. I believe fourth quarter. They were in field goal range, and they went for it. Now, understand, we know Dan Campbell's a brother that wants to push push the pace, take risks, take chances. We understand that. But at that point in time, with how much your offense has stagnated versus what you were in the first half, the re, the, and you don't take those easy points, theoretically, easy points, scoring to tie the game up, You, why? That's the biggest thing. That Why? Why would you not take that field goal to, to, to tie this game and give you an opportunity to potentially go into overtime or get a stop, get the ball back, and then go back down the field? There was no need. And I get it. If, you had, if they had converted, we would have been saying a completely different thing. If they had gotten that fourth down conversion, we would, we would be singing a different tune. This game could have gone a whole different way. The momentum would have fully been on the Lions' side. And this could have been a completely different outlook. Completely different. But that one decision is going to be looked at as the biggest reason why that they lost this game. Again, I listen, it's going to be looked at the biggest reason why they lost this game. But really, one of the bigger reasons... or. Bigger, if not just as big. Drops by wide receivers. Jared Goff was putting that ball on the money late in game. And consistently, it was being dropped or tipped up. Catchable balls weren't being caught in key situations. 
I believe it was, I believe it was, it was Williams had a big time game, potentially a touchdown. Literally fall directly through his hands on the money where only he could catch it. Only he could catch it. And it went, didn't even touch his hand, literally fell through the middle of his hands. Another play, big time play, drop. Wide open pass across the middle that would have gotten a key first down, missed, bobbled, and, and ultimately dropped. The amount of times that Jared Goff had legitimate dots, you can argue they were a little behind or a little in front. But the room for error, room for error, excuse me, versus the throw that he actually made, all should have been caught. In very key, pivotal situations. And they weren't. And they weren't. I'm not comparing this to what happened with Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl against the Patriots. When he had, again, one of the greatest passing performances I had ever witnessed in my lifetime. Every pass that was dropped was catchable only to the wide receiver and nobody else. Throwing that ball in bread baskets that I had never seen, I didn't even think were available. At angles, I didn't think was possible. I'm not comparing this to that type of performance. But I am saying that both of these eerily similar situations are all contingent on when the QB throws perfect dimes, will the wide receiver actively be able to take control and make the necessary catch? Will they be able to come up in the clutch? And they weren't. Any of those one, any of those passes actually gets caught, like the one in the end zone. Like it was, it was like thirty-five yard pass down the middle when they were trying to get back into the game. And I believe the third one as well. A a bunch of key pivotal drops that if they were caught could have changed the whole complexity. Would have done everything. So to a degree, it has to be. Hey, as much as this is on Dan Campbell. Wide receivers really did cost this team the game. Because with Detroit in that defense, while it's respectable, I always knew that when San Francisco gets going, they're nearly impossible to stop. The fact that they were, hold them, they were able to hold them to such a relegated pace in that first half was almost a testament to say, oh, this, this, is, this is it. They got it. They somehow found a way to stifle the best-built team in football. On both sides of the floor, or both sides of the field, excuse me. Then when they got back in rhythm, okay, it was just only a matter of time. So we understood what their offense was going to bring. It's too potent to be held in that dire straits for that long. But offensively, you had an opportunity, not just with Dan Campbell in that field goal, but with your wide receivers dropping key passes at pivotal points in time when there were dimes that you should have been able to catch because you were the only person there that had the ability to catch them. And consistently, they would drop. Constantly, they would drop. Over and over, make, making big-time moves and big-time throws. And they were on the money, and the wide receivers continued to literally let the opportunity Slip through their fingers. 
That's the biggest reason why they lost this game. And going with San Francisco, talking with Brock Purdy specifically, I mentioned before that he is, he showed that he wasn't a game manager. Yes, we know the whole storyline with Cam Newton and him naming, rattling off essentially QBs that he saw were not stars and were so game managers. Not, not him saying it was a bad thing, but saying that's how they play. If, if I interpreted the quote correctly, if not, please correct me in the comments below. But said about Dak Prescott, said about one other QB, and said about Brock Purdy. Now we see with this offense, Brock Purdy is more than just a game manager. He's a key asset to make this Shanahan offense work, to make it flow, to make it go. It's more than just a game manager that he brings at his, in his arsenal. He doesn't just control and not make mistakes. No, he's one of the key reasons why this offense is so diverse and so hard to stop. Him, McCaffrey, Debo, George Kittle, all of them work together. And uh, Jesuit, Juzek, the fullback slash also can play tight end. This team, with him at the helm, is able to function the way it functions. There's a real argument that maybe there isn't other QBs that can perform that type of offensive scheme. He's he's a perfect fit for this team. Yes, there are people better at work, but he's more than his value is more than just I control. He makes this offense go. He's a big part, excuse me, of making this offense go. Again, everything revolves around the outright diverse dominance of McCaffrey and Debo and Kittle. But a big player in why all of this is able to work so Seamless is Brock Purdy. Purdy is not just a game manager. He is showing that he is a legitimately good QB. And him being in this offense makes it flow. Potentially better than anybody else put in this situation. Potentially. I'm not saying that there aren't QBs better than him. There are. But he fits. He he he. he it just it's a perfect fit from what I'm seeing. It's a perfect fit. It's a perfect fit. And what he's still got so much more to grow in his tenure as a QB. Because he's so young. He's what his second, third year in the league. And he's already doing this. Yeah, this is more than just a game manager. This is this is this is this has a this is a player that can potentially show that he's a big time man. Big time performer. A big time asset for this team. And if he wins the Super Bowl against Patrick Mahomes, hey, we're really going to have to put those conversations to bed. We really are. If that indeed does happen. But again, we'll preview that matchup later on as it comes forward. But right now, oh boy, the stage is set and I can't wait to see how the game unfolds. But now, transitioning from the world of the NBA into the world of boxing. We had to talk about Jaime Mugia knocking out John Ryder. And since we're talking about boxing, it is time to step into the ring. That is right. Ring the bell. Let's get it started. Round one of this boxing segment of the show underway. 
talking about Javi Mugia knocking out John Ryder in nine rounds. Mind you, this was the first time I had actually gotten to see Jaime Mugia box. I had heard about his aggression. I had heard about his all-out offense. I had heard about, again, undefeated, I believe at that point in time, 41-0, and 31 KOs, if I have that record correctly. Now, 42-0, uh, 32 KOs. And everything that I heard about this brother was true. And outright, uh, the epitome of Mexican-style boxing. Aggressive, forceful, always coming forward. Throwing in volume, throwing with, to a degree, caution to the wind. The last fight I heard, he had thrown even more caution than this against John Ryder. Had foregone defense entirely. and just went strictly offense. This brother is a barn burner of a fighter. He is, he is, this, he is fun to watch. He is fun to watch. I, again, I always heard the name. Never got to see him fight. I see what everybody's talking about now. Oh, this brother's excited. This cat is something to see in the ring. It's just an, it's an onslaught, a continuous onslaught. He doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. And against John Ryder, it showed true. Outright aggressive. Knocked out, knocked down, knocked out John Ryder. And knocked him down multiple times in this fight. Something that Canelo was not able to do at all. And or he knocked him down. But he wasn't able to get him out of there. He wasn't able to get the fight stuff. He didn't look as overbearing as we saw Jaime Mugia fight against John Ryder. That's just the truth. Ain't no favoritism. That's just what we saw against the same opponent. We saw somebody put on a better outright performance than Canelo. Against the same guy. And again, Jaime Mugia, it was the guy. Onslaught was incredible. Constantly put out, put out that jab, was aggressive, and didn't let John Ryder really get comfortable. Always forced John Ryder on the back foot. Constantly had, again, his jab active and thrown and moving. Was, showed great chin. Brother showed a phenomenal chin in this fight. Because he was getting, let's not get it twisted, he was getting caught. That he while he was better defensively than what I heard about in his last fight, still there were some holes and he got caught, but he just walked on. Legitimately just was eating shots and moving forward. That extreme offensive style relegated John Ryder to not be able to impose his own strength on him. Though he tried. And when John Ryder tried to make it an infighting affair, Mungia happily obliged and didn't run, stood his ground. And kept on moving forward. It, it just, it's just such a, such a fun fight. Fireworks all night long. He would, and when he did get John Ryder hurt, he let his hands go. Again, reverted back to the semblance of what I've heard from his last fight, when he was even less offensively, or excuse me, defensively sound. When he got John Ryder hurt, he definitely showed that. But it's been, I mean, combinations left, right, and center. You amped up the stalking aggression even more than it already was for the majority of the fight when he got John Ryder on the ropes and legitimately hurt and after knockdowns. I mean, it was it was relentless. Relentless. Just a, del a relentless display of offensive firepower. And I'm just, just wow. That's all you got, just wow. This is a wow kind of fighter. This is a fighter that can sell tickets. This is a boxer that can put butts in seats. This is a boxer that can make people turn their heads and say, 
I want to tune in to every fight this brother's in. He's, this cat is entertaining and got talent to boot. He has legitimate talent to boot. Oh, by the way, fights in the clinch and will fight out of the clinch. Something that I don't see enough boxers do. Won't take no for an answer when it comes to you're trying to stop my offensive flow. And even when the refs gives him warnings, he doesn't stop. Him and Freddie Roach, perfect pairing, perfect pairing. Freddie Roach offensively minded, as we know with him, training Manny Pacquiao, going and now training Jaime Munguia and being his cornerman. It, it's a perfect pairing in terms of the mentality of both fighters and both fighter and trainer fit each other to a T, to a T. It, 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 it's, it's a match made in heaven. This pairing is so incredible because they it just works so well for what both want to do get an established dominance get you out of your comfort zone and make it so that my offense overwhelms you to where you don't know how to react constant pressure constant barrage of punches constantly feeling like you're being put in a corner Always feeling like you have to fight out of a situation and never feeling like you're fighting self into a fight. That's what I'm going to get in. And he, he, he won just about every round of this fight. Just about every round. Maybe outside of one. When John Ryder started landing consistent counters. But outside of that, uh, he won every round up until round nine when he finally stopped. And again, credit to John Ryder. He showed his chin and heart. He started coming on later in the fight, just like he did with Canelo. Just like he did with Canelo. After Canelo dominated the first half of the fight and knocked him down. Similar to Jaime Munguia. John Ryder came on late, looked stronger, started getting in the rhythm of Munguia, was able to now start timing his counters and landing shots. But Munguia stifled that building momentum with even more offense of his own. It's just, it's just, it's so fun to see. So fun to see. It's so fun to watch this cat fight. It's so fun. Jaime Munguia now is, I'm a fan. I'm absolutely a fan. I am a fan of this brother. This, Jaime Munguia fighting is something so entertaining to watch. If you haven't watched him, watch him. This cat is something special to see. But now that brings another point. With this dominating performance, with him fighting against and knocking out John Ryder against, uh, in better fashion than what we saw Canelo do. Again, Canelo won by unanimous decision. Munguia got him out of there. With him doing a better job against the same opponent that Canelo has, now everybody's calling for Munguia and Canelo. Now everybody's calling for Canelo to put him in that situation and get him in the ring for his undisputed titles right now as his next fight. That's what we want to see. At least that's what the arena was saying. That's what the, um, I believe the zone, that's what they asked him. And that's what's been public discourse. Is my question that I asked to you, is this the right fight to make now? With this statement fight of John Ryder being knocked out by Jaime Munguia and Jaime Munguia now being firmly in and comfortable at 168 pounds at super middleweight. Firmly. Again, he had a, he had a fight before this. Again, was more reckless, was 
not nearly as defensively sound and adept, threw more caution to the wind, and was still adjusting to the weight. Now, against a respected opponent who's had history against the best in the division, going and doing a better job than the champion did against him and getting him out of there. He's, he's a fully-fledged super middleweight. He's now fully comfortable. All of that looks in his favor that he should be the guy, at least in the public eye. But in my opinion, no. I don't think he should be the next. I don't think he should be next for Canelo. I don't. I don't think he should fight Canelo next. And it's for two reasons. One, and the main one, there's no reason. There's no reason for him to be fighting Jaime Munguia, or for Canelo to be fighting Jaime Munguia when David Benavidez is still right there. David Benavidez has, has earned the right to fight Canelo. There's no other question that needs to be asked about what fight should be next between those two. There, there just isn't. I don't care how exciting we see Jaime Munguia is and how much fun that fight would be. He, did, he with this win, while it's respectable, he has put himself in the running. Don't get me wrong, but he is nowhere in any frame of history any fan that you want to try to gauge it, nowhere should he be in line to fight Canelo. None. It should be David Benavidez. That's, that's it. It should be David Benavidez fighting Canelo next. Nobody else. Because both people have cleared out the entire division. Nobody else should be fighting. And yes, I know, we got Canelo now looking like he's going to fight Jamel Charlo's brother, Jamal Charlo, the bigger of the Charlos, who's already a middleweight, and we and we saw him return against Jose Benavidez and absolutely whitewash him in a dominating display. Looking, okay, he's fully back. He'll be moving up. If he does fight, he'll be moving up to 168 to go and fight Canelo for his undisputed title. That's what's being talked about. But even with that being talked about in a fight that I want to see, and the ramifications of what that would mean for Canelo's legacy. I don't want to see that because I want to see David Benavidez versus, versus Canelo Alvarez. Because David Benavidez has earned the right more than anybody else in any division to fight him. More than anybody. Even more than Terrence Crawford. Because David Benavidez has been in the same division and has cleaned out everybody else. Every other requisite legitimate contender or prospect to be that would be in line. Look at you fight Canelo. He has cleaned them out. Either he beat who Canelo beat, or he beat somebody that Canelo never faced, but was a contender, and got him out of it. Caleb Plant, Morel, um, uh, uh, Bubu Andre, has gone through, and literally gone through the ringer, and mopped everybody. There's no reason why he shouldn't be in line as the first man to fight David Benavides. That fight is the fight I want to see next. Nobody else. Who I want to see. Nobody else. That's number, reason number one as to why Munguia shouldn't be in the running. And the second reason for why Munguia shouldn't fight Kilo Alvarez is because it'll be over. It'll be done. It'll be done in six. Five, potentially. With how exciting Mungia is. Yes, with, he's got more experience than the average elite boxer with 42 fights. Again, undefeated. 
he's he's got the experience. Don't get me wrong. He he's 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 done the requisite circuit work. He has put in time. He has seen a bunch of different skills and conquered them all. Showed he's got power. Showed he's got a chin. But he is not ready to fight him in the first place. He will get cold clock in six. With what if this is the same Mungia I saw against I see against Canelo if they did in fact fight against each other. He will get cold clocked in six. He will get knocked out by David Benavidez in six or five potentially. Because then that's more so Canelo versus Mungia is counterpuncher versus outright offense. Mungia versus David Benavidez is outright offense versus outright offense. And chin versus chin. And Mungia is not winning that battle. Oh, no, he's not. Especially with what I saw in this fight against John Ryder. Why do I say that? Well, let's break it down. When it comes to Haimungia versus John, Haimungia versus John Ryder versus Mungia versus Canelo or David Menevides. We'll start with Canelo. Mungia versus Canelo is a fight that he will lose in between six and eight rounds getting knocked out or technically stopped by the ref because he still is, while he's so offensively centric, so many holes he has added at Canelo's disposal to be counterpunched and caught consistently. What we saw in John Ryder in that fight, while Mungia won the whole fight, remember, don't let the flash of the offense fool you. He was getting countered consistently for the majority of that fight. Now, John Ryder was, was, took some time for him to start landing clean. But once he got the timing right, he was countering Mungir a lot with, with I, I believe, was he? I believe it was the Southpaw. I believe it was the Southpaw. He was countering, with, countering him with that left hook or the right hook. When Mungir would come on on the inside, on the ropes. And Mungir was consistently getting caught. He was. Now, he walked through it and just kept on wailing away because he's, his chin is that good and Again, respect to John Vida because John Vida is legitimately strong. And his offense was in style was just too much for Vida to actually be able to capitulate and adapt. But that doesn't change the fact that in that fight, he got caught a lot by counter hooks from John Ryder. Small windows that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the more John Ryder was able to get the timing right, and he was catching him. Now you go up against the best counterpuncher in super middleweight. One of the biggest styles is literally catch and shoot. And with the way that Mungia throws his shots, while it is powerful, and there's still some technique that isn't as refined. So it doesn't come out as just boom, quick, fast, sharp. There's a little bit of slugging in that style. It's not bad. I'm just saying what it is. There's a slugging style arc to his punches and those types of arcs have the ability to be countered when you don't throw with the requisite level of sharp precise technique driven punches against Canelo you will get caught you will get countered so look at James Kirk, Kirkman, Kirkland look at Amir Khan look even look at um, Caleb Plant and he's one of the sharper boxers, one of the more technical boxers in the division. 
it, he, everybody that he faced got put out. And when they, even though they were sharper punches than Mungia, better technical punches than Mungia, the offense wasn't as overwhelming, but in terms of the technique as how they throw, they were better. And we saw him deal with them all. We saw him get rid of them all. We saw him knock out the majority of them. Billy Joe Saunders, another technical boxer, shifty, fast, in terms of his hand speed, and elusive. Sharper punches. A pot-shotting type scoring boxer. Doesn't have power, but he's got the technique and speed to be able to outpoint his opponents on a consistent basis. He was seen as a big contender to go against Canelo. And Canelo got him out of there. Broke him down and got him out. Literally broke his face and got him out of there. All these boxers are better punchers in terms of technique than Mungia. And with Mungia being such a slugging type fighter, I don't say that in a bad way. I'm saying that in his style and in the way that he punches. He is open, just like he did against John Ryder, to a bunch of counters. And John Ryder was catching him. And he's nowhere near the counter puncher, nor as powerful as Canelo is. There is no way that he is beating Canelo. There's none. It'll be an exciting fight. Absolutely. It'll be an exciting fight. But he will get broken down and most likely caught clean. He'll be, and when he gets forced to back up against Canelo, if they did fighting against each other, when he gets forced to back up against Canelo, and when he, he has to be the man to now be more defensive, that brings up a whole nother slew of problems because as we saw in the fight with John Ryder, he can't fight in two styles at the same time. Just like I had a problem with, with, um, with juggernaut Joe Joyce. He can't fight in two different styles at once. He can't be defensively sound while being offensively active. Nor can he be offensively active while being defensively sound. He can't do both. He's got, again, better defense when he does go into the offensive realm, but it's not to the same level that it needs to be if you want to fight against people like Canelo. It, it, it just isn't. You, we saw it in this fight with John Ryder. When he would go and fight John Ryder, when he wasn't being offensively minded, he wasn't throwing anything. That's one of the biggest reasons why John Ryder was able to get some success. Yes, to a degree, it was because Mungia was taking a round off. But even before that, or after that, rather, when Mungia was getting back offensively, once he started getting caught with those counters by John Ryder more consistently and started being more defensively aware, he couldn't, he wasn't throwing anything. He was not. It would be a complete switch off from any offense that he wanted to actually incur. And then it would be a completely new switch back on and a whole totally different fighter when he would get back into his offensive-minded ways. And because he can't fight in two styles at the same time and can't fight defensively sound on all fronts while being his offensively-minded self, when you switch gears like that at such a stark rate, such an abrupt rate against somebody like Canelo, oh, you're done. Because now that I know when you are and when you're not going to be aggressive, if you ever choose to be non-aggressive against Canelo, he will eat you alive. 
And so what is that going to also force? Munguia to be all-time offense. And what's that going to cause? Even with countering windows. And what is that going to cause him to do? Get knocked out. Because while his chin is great, again, it's good, as we saw against John Ryder. It's not up to the level to be able to take that many consistent counters against somebody like Canelo. Or rather, it hasn't shown that it can take that many consistent counters from somebody of the caliber of a Canelo and keep on trucking and going. That's a different kind of power, different kind of precision. That's a different kind of ruthless ability that Canelo has at his disposal that Munguia hasn't faced before. He's normally brought that type of intensity. He hasn't faced that, nor has he been, has he been in that type of moment. But strictly, forget the moment, strictly talking about the, the ring, what they do in the ring. You can talk about outside environment effects all day long, no doubt about it. It is a, it is a real thing. But in terms of the core aspect of what we are talking about, the real fight, he's not ready. And when it comes to David Benavidez, that might be even more dangerous than Canelo. Because with David Benavidez, he won't let you. He won't wait to see if you're going to be defensive or offensive. He will just wait, just like he did against Boo Andre, just like he did against Caleb Plant. Wait you out to find your style. And then once he says, okay, it's my turn, then you have no choice but to be either all out offense or shell up. There's no, there's no in between. And if you get forced to shell up into the high moon gear, you have no chance at beating him. And if you get forced into a firefight with David Benavides, if you're high moon gear, you're going to get beat up. You're going to look like every other opponent. You're going to look like Demetrius Andre. You're going to look like Caleb Plant. You're going to look like Morel. You're going to look like every single legitimate contender that David Benavides has ever faced. And you are going to be stopped. Your corner is going to stop. You're not going to get knocked out. Your corner is going to stop the fight. You will have to take a year off. Because right now, if you fought those two, you are not ready. You're not. In terms of a talent perspective. I'm not saying he's not good. No. I'm saying there are levels to this. And in terms of both, have you earned your, your right to fight them and has your ability shown that you can compete with them? Both of those are a no in my estimation. Now, that doesn't change that I want to see the fight happen. We want to see the best fight, the best. We want to see prospects with tenures and up-and-comers and both veteran fighters who have shown, okay, he, they are something different from the rest of the crop going face off against each other. For, so from that standpoint, yes, of course, I want to see the fight. But we're talking about in the nature of that fight, if it is indeed made, one, he shouldn't have first crack at Canelo. If anything, the, the, the more deserved fight would be against David Benavides. And those two, whoever wins, goes and fights Canelo. Because Canelo is... The prize, that's just the truth. He is the face of boxing. And just as important, he is the undisputed champion. If not more important, because we value belts over here, he is the undisputed champion. There is nobody else that has a belt in that division except for him. He is the only guy that you can that you must go through to be seen as a legitimate champion in this division. There is nobody else. All roads lead through into him. So since that's the case, he has to be the only man on everybody's mind. 
But to earn that right, have you done enough? And with Mungia, like I said before, he's put his name in the running. He shouldn't be there, but he shouldn't have first crack. And if anything, it should be the fight between him and David Benavidez. If that fight does get made, that should be the definitive factor. The, 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 the definitive fight. For whoever wins this, they fight Canelo. And Canelo is, is it. That's it. That's it. That submits for everybody's mind. Who is indeed the best super middleweight in the world? Again, right now it is Canelo. But people are saying David Benavidez will beat him. People are now saying that Jaime Munguia is the it's so facto X factor in he can throw a rich in everybody's system. Well, if that's the case, then it's now come down to the final three. That's it. One, one is the ultimate definitive fight in Canelo. The final fight to decide who fights him. If it doesn't just be David Benavidez outright, Bungia versus Benavidez. And then after that, winner fights Canelo. And then after that, at win, lose, or draw, whatever happens in that fight, then we see Canelo fight other people. If he wins, okay, he fights Jamal or, Jamal or Terrence Crawford. Again, this is my perfect world. I know, like I said, Jamal Charlo's getting, looking to fight Canelo now, next. That's what's being speculated. I'm not saying it's set in stone as, the, as of this recording. But it should be in the best case scenario, Canelo versus winner of Benavidez versus Munguia. Or, even better, Canelo versus Dave Benavidez outright. And then Munguia fights him afterwards. But either way, from that standpoint, he shouldn't have first crack. And from a talent perspective, he does not seem ready in my mind to put up the necessary fight against David Benavidez or Canelo Alvarez. He just doesn't. I don't see it. As good as he is, I don't see it. Because his style is both detrimental and dangerous for himself against both of these fighters. Specifically dangerous against David Benavidez and detrimental specifically against Canelo Alvarez. I don't think he can win any of those fights. Though I want to see it happen. I don't think he's got the requisite necessary sharpness and technique to make those fights winnable. He'll get beat up by David Benavidez if they did fight. And he'll get countered to Kingdom Come if he fights against Canelo. Or stalked and broken down by both of them. So there's no, at this point in time, I don't see it. He loses both, but they will be entertaining fights. It'll be competitive. Don't get me wrong. But a competitive blowout is still a blowout. A competitive fight that's one-sided is still a one-sided fight. It doesn't mean it's not good. It just means that there's a clear level of stature between one and the other. And somebody's outclassing somebody, but somebody's also being game to fight and making this a legitimate war. But they're losing that war. But it's exciting to watch. It's a good fight. But one person's dominating the other. That's, that's what I see if Mungia fights Canelo. 
or if Mungia fights David Benavides. He hasn't earned the right to fight Canelo yet, but he's earned the right to be in the running. But he shouldn't get first crack. And in terms of his talent, I don't see him being ready yet. I just don't. I need to see better technical offense with how offensively minded he is before I can say that he's ready to fight Canelo or David Benavides. Because right now, right now, as exciting as it would be, it is a scary prospect for Mungia to see him in the ring with both of them. More scary for David Benavidez against Mungia. Because Mungia, if he goes against offense versus offense, he's losing that battle every time. Hand speed, power, arguably chin, and stamina. Though he's got phenomenal stamina. That gas tank will be ripped away from him if he fights against David Benavidez. And because his defense isn't where it needs to be already, good gosh, nightmare material for what the potential end of the outcome could be. How bad he could lose. And for Canelo, it's a technical nightmare, more than a physical nightmare. Because the technique is so far and away different and sharper on one end than the other. Mungia going up against Canelo, from my perspective, outclass, outmatch, counting the kingdom come and knocked out. In both situations. Canelo would everybody be there. So no. Mm-mm. I don't think he's ready. I don't think he's ready. But he he's earned the right to get in the ring. But if he does, it shouldn't be against Canelo first. It should be, it should be against David Benavidez. Whenever that fights Canelo. Or Canelo versus David Benavidez fight. Whenever that Mungia fights next. You know what? Should not have first crack at that title. No, we shouldn't. Absolutely not. And also Covering the world of boxing, we have to discuss what's going on with Tim T- Tim Sue. I got the name right, yeah, Tim Sue. Because now, breaking news, and next segment for the show, Keith Thurman is back. Keith One Time Thurman is back. He has returned to the world of boxing after a very lengthy hiatus from the sport, going to India, I believe India, getting married, all this stuff, going outside of boxing, still in phenomenal shape, but the list is still there, and the talent looks to be coming back into the ring, and the and the outright promote, promotional appeal that he brings to the table is just like he never left, as he's been promoting the fight, and it is confirmed he will fight Tim Sue. Not for his WBO title, however, because it, WBO didn't sanction it. So it'll be at a catch weight of 155. But this is still a major fight in the realm of both Sue's and Keith Thurman's career. And why is that the case? Well, let's talk about it right now. The reason why this is so important is because this is both a statement fight and a good legacy fight for Tim Sue. Because if he beats Keith Thurman, who was at one point in time a phenomenal boxer at the top of the boxing landscape, seen as somebody that could give pe- people like Errol Spence Jr., Manny Pacquiao, when they when they were building up to get into the ring, and others, a lot of trouble. And now, in his return to the ring, if he beats a name like that, boom. That is a lot of good for Sue. There's a lot of good for Tim Sue. Not only does he retain the title regardless, but he beats a legitimately respected name. At one point in time, an elite name. Is he still elite? Well, he should be, unless his skills has just rusted 
all around. But the question is more so than Sue beating him and what it, it will do for his legacy. What Keith Thurman are we going to see when he gets stepped into the ring? That's the, that's the real question because of how long he's been out. He looks like he's in great shape. But again, catch weighs 155, so maybe he can't fight at, maybe, hey, maybe his body has now changed and to a point where he can't fight at the weight class that we normally saw him at. Since that's the case, where will we see Keith Thurman elevate to when he gets into the ring with Tim Sue? Will we see the combination of power and speed that we saw from him in the past? The good elusiveness and slickness that he also had at his disposal. And the craftiness that we've, again, made him one of the better boxers in his prime. A legitimate champion and threat to anybody that he faced up against. And, and I don't know. I really don't know. I really think that this has rusted him. This layoff has, now it could work the other way. It could be that this layoff has got given his body time to fully heal because the world of boxing is a, is a ruthless sport. And sometimes taking time off helps you get back to your old self. That has happened before. Ring rust has, is, has always been a thing. And it is a concern. Oh, don't get it twisted. It's a concern. But it's also been seen as a rejuvenator. Again, what do we see with, Jam with, with Jamal Charlo and his return against Jose Benavides? Look back in prime form. Look sharp. Look strong. Look tactical. Look deliberate. Look ready. And that time away from the ring seemed to do him good in terms of his in-ring production. Mentally, I hope he's still getting better and better with getting whatever help that he needs. But in terms of his all-around boxing ability and boxing psyche, seemingly he is back fully in the sport. And it's where he needs to be in terms of in order to fight in the best of his abilities in the boxing realm and in the boxing sense when he stepped into the ring. With that being said, with Keith Thurman, now with him being away from the ring for so long, him coming back against a prime opponent could indeed show motivation and full recovery to essentially amalgamate all into a new and potentially better Keith one-time Thurman. Again, it's a lofty sentiment to say, but it's not one that's impossible. It's one that can legitimately happen. Keith Thurman is somebody who's always stayed in shape, who has always kept his pulse on the world of boxing. He's never truly been just a way, a way. We might have forgot about him. Oh, trust me, we did forget about him. At least I did. But it was never in terms of who to keep Thurman is. It was never that he had just uh, put it. There was always an inkling that he could be back at some point in time. It's only a matter of when. Now is the win. But still, while this could be, hey, best case scenario, we see the best Keith Thurman. And he gives Tim, Tim Sue a phenomenal fight. And then, let alone, Beats him in upset. It would be an upset victory. Now, could lead to a rematch for the title. That could be lead to a potential situation where he fights another title holder and gets a legitimate title shot, if not immediately against Tim Sue in a rematch against any of the other claimed champions. It's a real situation. We could see a lot of stuff go in the well in the realm for the better. Of Keith Thurman to all of a sudden have a resurgence in his career. A second half. This could also be a situation where this is the last who I. Yeah, this is this is it. Because this we could have, be see a real situation. Hey, look oh, at this! We got the problems here! We got the problems here! 
where we got problems. We can see a real situation where we see Keith Thurman come back into the ring and we got a legitimate problem that is extremely detrimental for Keith Thurman. And it should have been that he stayed out and potentially retired. Because this is, in fact, from what I can gather, looking like this could be a last hoorah. This could be the last situation for Keith Thurman getting into the ring. Because if he loses this fight, especially in dominating fashion, if he doesn't get it done, at least doesn't put on a respectable performance at minimum. But if he gets absolutely whitewashed against Tim Sue, this, this could be it. I don't know where it goes from it. Because now I, it, it will show and prove that the sport has moved on from him. Or where he is now in terms of the boxing landscape. No longer where he used to be at his best. Now, he, if he does continue to box, no longer will he be considered for in the championship realm. If he indeed continues to, look, to fight. If he does lose this fight. And I think he will lose this fight. Because the body attack of Tim Sue is going to be something detrimental. Again, Tim Sue is a slow fighter. Slow as in methodical. Doesn't throw a whole lot of punches. But all of his punches are deliberate. Then we see him fight against Mendoza. Is it Mendona? Mendoza. Mendoza. I believe it was Mendoza. The the, the brother that knocked out uh, Fandor in uh, early last year in contention for knockout of the year. Sebastian Fandor. I believe his name was Mendoza. I could be wrong. Please correct. But still, point still stands. When they fought and when Tim Sue fought Mendoza, he, well, Mendoza put up a good fight. Don't get me wrong. He did. But it was once the methodical pace of Tim Sue started picking up and he then got more deliberate in his offensive attack, already was defensively sound in that fight. There was nothing that he could do. Was rocked. And he's got a good chin in terms of Mendoza. Was rocked. Shook, attacked to the body. We saw it have an effect on him and was beat up legitimately. Now going up against Keith Thurman, that body attack is going to be the main thing that Tim Sue's going to go after you against because we're going to test that gas tank. We're going to test what you can do. We're going to see how long that layoff has really taken a toll or how long of a layoff that you've had. Excuse me. Let me rephrase that. My goodness, getting tongue tied. We're going to see if the long layoff that you have had really has affected you physically by attacking the main thing that will go away if you haven't fought in a long time, stamina, your ability to fight for 12 rounds. If that is indeed the case, Tim Sue is going to attack that to kingdom come. Oh, that body attack is going to be vicious. Your ribs are going to be hurting, rattling, bones cracking. You're going to feel something that you absolutely will. It's going to be, forget the head. We're going to see how much you can take downstairs. We're going to flood that basement, in the words of Teddy Atlas. Flood it to kingdom come and see how much you can actually stand. That's, what there's, that's what's going to happen. Because if, if your body can't take it, oh, you're done. If you keep coming, you're done. You are done. Because if your body goes away, then the speed that you would have an, potentially would have an advantage on. Though Tim Sue has some deceptively quick hands. That would go away. And the footwork that you are known for, you won't be able to use it anymore. 
Hence, you'll be into a forced into a firefight. Hence, more attack to the body, to the point that you will only be guarding the body because you'll be so bruised and beat up. Then the diverse attack starts. Now you're getting hit to the head, but you're worried about the body. You don't know what to defend. Everything hurts. Everything is pain. Life is pain inside the ring. And now, knocked out. One fell swoop. Done. That's what can happen. And that's what I think is going to happen. Because I don't know, or I don't see why, Keith Thurman or any of these returning boxers don't take at least a tune-up fight to get ready before you go and challenge these elite of the elite. Because yes, you want to make money and you want to, you are a big name. Nobody should be above making sure that their skills are in check. And with this fight being up, immediate jump into the deepest of ends against one of the best in a division. And you opt to fight him? It's an absolute, it's no, no. It's in my opinion, a stupid decision. Because I'm all for, I want to see the best fights happen when fighters are at their best. And if you are fighting after a two-plus year layoff, not even touching the sport from what I can gather, while keeping an eye on what's been going on, I know, ooh, it's, it looks bad. It looks bad. It looks incredibly bad. And I don't want to see that because I don't want to see somebody just get beat up. But that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Because I don't think Keith Thurman is going to be nearly the Keith Thurman that we knew him as when he left the arena. The Keith Thurman that gave Pacquiao a second half legitimately good fight after being dominated in the first half. A Keith Thurman that was looking to challenge all the best at his division. A Keith Thurman that was seen as arguably the best at his division at one point in time. In some people's eyes. Not all, but some. Minimum top three. When he was at his best. I can't just jump and say, oh, we're going to see that Keith Thurman right then and there. And because of that, because of the long layoff, because of the ramifications of if he loses this fight, this potential will be the end of his tenure as a title contender. And if he does continue, he will most likely be a gatekeeper or having to work his way back up into fighting for a title. This could be the time where this is the last hoorah. And if he loses this, he's going to be done. It's a real situation where this could be the last time that he fights. And capping off a career with solid payday, if he loses, solid payday against a respected champion who just was the better man. And father time is caught up to you. To a degree because you set out. Now again, reasons why? I don't know why. I didn't get into the why. I don't know why he went and left the sport for two plus years. I don't know why. It's not my prerogative to say. All I know is that he hasn't been fighting. And he is now back in the ring against one of the more dangerous competitors that he will have faced in his career. A champion who's been active, who's been in his prime, who has had a string of dominating performances, who has been consistently improving fight by fight and is primed and ready, warmed up, always revved up because he's always fighting against somebody that has been, this is his first fight in how many years? 
two plus, potentially three over. It's not looking good. This is spelling really, really bad for Keith Thurman because it's hard to go off of even what he used to do because we don't know if that's still Keith Thurman anymore. He doesn't like what L. Spence, where before the Crawford fight, okay, we can go and see who he fought before. And it was within the last year, at least in the last two. And boom, okay, we have at least a gauge of what we can expect going into the Crawford fight. We can't even do that with Thurman because he's been so far removed and so out of the ring for so long without even an inkling of competition even throwing his way that him coming back, we can't even gauge if that's going to be the same Keith Thurman that this tactic should work, this tactic should work, this tactic should work. We can't even say it'll work because we don't even know if he can use it because we don't know if his body has changed for the worse. If physically he can't even use the tools that he used to have at the best of the best when he was at his prime. Because we could be, he could be very well, very much out of his prime. Very well could be completely out of his prime when he steps back in the ring. We don't know. We don't know. So we don't know how to, I don't know how to gauge. I don't. Because of that, I don't think he's, I, I'm really leaning towards it's going to be the last time that we see Keith Thurman in the ring. And if it is, hey, hats off to a great career. Hats off to a great career. But this could spell the end of Keith one time. Because one time could be the last time. If, potentially, if he decides to go that route. This could be the one last time that we see Keith one time Thurman fight in a boxing professionally. Before he walks off to the sunset. But all that we have to wait. Because we, who? We have to wait and see what happens. But with that being said, this has been another episode of the World Report with me, John Watch. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to the world of sports through my eyes, through my lens. Y'all have been phenomenal. Y'all have been wonderful. Again, share this show with everybody that you know. Leave a like on the video. Comment thoughts and opinions. Subscribe to the channel. Make it so that everybody knows this is the hottest show in all the globe. And again, rate us five stars on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it, we're there. If not, we'll get there. We got so much more to cover. We got so much in all the sports realms to cover throughout the week, throughout the year. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here on this show, and we will see you next episode. Peace and love. We are out of here.